Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter here on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. In my Faster Please newsletter, I often write about the need for upwing thinking. Despite the political drama that unfolds on cable news and social media every day, the key divide in American life is not left versus right, but up versus down. Upwingers are all about acceleration for solving big problems and effectively tackling new ones, as well as creating maximum opportunity for all Americans. Downwingers are soaked in nostalgia and risk minimization. In this episode, I'm joined by Steve Fuller to discuss the political implications between upwing and downwing thinking. Steve holds the Auguste Comte Chair in Social Epistemology at the University of Warwick's Department of Sociology. He's the author of several books, including 2014's The Proactionary Imperative. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. In 1973, so almost 50 years ago, the futurist F.M. Asfandiari wrote the book Upwingers, a Futurist Manifesto, where he posited a new political access where future-oriented upwingers and more traditionalist downwingers would replace the existing left-wing, right-wing axis. You've also framed this as sort of green, meaning sort of traditional environmentalist versus black, sort of the sky is the limit or perhaps the space um, is the limit. I wonder if you could just speak for a moment or two about what did the tenets of being upwing or on the black pole versus downwing, maybe on the green pole, what does that look like in the modern political environment? I think the first thing to say, given that you started with the with the Svangieri, who's known as FM 2030 to his fans in transhumanism, um, that the book Upwingers actually only talked about upwingers, but didn't talk about downwingers, because he was an incredibly optimistic guy, you might say. Uh, and so what he was really arguing in that book back in the 70s was that the left-right political axis would just be replaced by upwingers, that there wouldn't be downwingers. Okay, so that's an interesting aspect of what was going on back then in the 70s. And in fact, what he thought about as a so-called black sky thinking, which is what you were alluding to in your question about the black being the kind of the signal color for the upwingers, um, he was actually talking something uh, rather close to um, sort of... Um, well, the kind of internet that we have now, basically, especially uh, in terms of uh, the uh, the personalized aspects of it, the social media, you know, the, the the World Wide Web, all of this kind of stuff. That was kind of what he was getting at. He wasn't really getting at some of the more uh, profound things uh, that I would say is now part of the uh, political landscape uh, in the contemporary world, which in a way makes the upwinger downwinger distinction a much more uh, visible distinction and much more salient than it was back 50 years ago. So um, now I think there is an upwinger-downwinger distinction in a very clear kind of way. And so I'm the one who kind of brings in the downwinger aspect of this. Um, and so as you said in your, uh, in, in your introductory remarks, um, you know, at least in the European political spectrum, in the European political spectrum, red means left and blue means right. Whereas I understand the United States these days with the state, you know, with the way the, the states get kind of mapped, it's the other way around. 
but the point is, in any case, that color scheme is gone. And what we instead have is black versus green, where black, and so black, the idea of black for the upwingers is that the sky's the limit, right? And so you're imagining sort of the black sky kind of thing that's the stellar cosmos kind of color. Right. Um, and whereas the, the downwingers are green in the sense that they basically want human beings to be planted on Earth. Right. And, and so it's a very Earth kind of uh, orientation. And so it is a sky versus Earth thing in a way, upwinger, downwinger, in the way I'm talking about it. Now, the now the now the interesting thing about this distinction, as I think it plays out now, is that it shows a sort of fundamental instability, um, you might say, in the concept of the human. Okay, because insofar as we've thought about social life and political life um, as uh, revolving around humanity, how to organize humanity, you know, what humanity is about and so forth, we generally have had a kind of um, a kind of, you might say, common understanding of what a human being is. And that's roughly speaking, homo sapiens. Okay, Um, and that homo sapiens in a way provides a kind of outer limit to what we think about as a human. But now, with a lot of things going on, um, you know, not just the stuff that has to do with information technology, where we can, you know, perhaps upload our consciousness or merge with machines in some way, even in some kind of, you know, Elon Musk, Neuralink sort of fashion, where we become cyborgs in a sense, right? It's not just that that's going on, but of course, there's all these uh, potential biological transformations, biomedical transformations, which in a way could really uh, destabilize even the biological nature of the human being, right? So for example, human beings living indefinitely, right? Uh, and, and, and that all of that stuff would have incredible knock-on effects with regard to how we organize our social and political life, which to a large extent depends on the idea that human beings are more or less upright apes who live a finite period of time, right? And then they succeed to another generation. Right. So there's all and upwingers are, in a sense, open to everything like this. So it kind of explodes the category of the human. And that's why the term transhumanism is an appropriate term for those people, because they want to transcend the limits of the human. Now, the downwingers take the exact opposite view and, in fact, think the upwingers are completely dangerous. Okay, Uh, the upwingers think that if anything, the problems that we have now on Earth, so let's say, you know, the climate issues, I I suppose would be the most, but also even maybe the pandemic issue and so forth, has to do with the extent in which humans have have in a way overextended themselves on the planet, right? They don't know their limits, right? right? And in some sense, what human beings need to do uh, is not to think that we're somehow above animals and nature, but rather to return, right, as it were, to our natural origins. Right. And that homo sapiens, right, may not be so special after all, and that our survival, as it were, may depend on our having a kind of more modest understanding of of what our nature is. And so the downwingers basically want to get us down there. And so that's why these people uh, like to talk about uh, the precautionary principle, for example, which is to say that, you know, when you introduce any innovations or whatever, right, uh, you minimize risk, you do no harm. It's like a Hippocratic oath for the earth. Right. Uh, and, and this is a very, you know, this is a view that has a lot of prominence these days. And, and so sometimes it's his, this view is even called post-humanist, right, because in a sense it wants to minimize the significance of the human in order to return to something that is a more stable, you know, earthly existence. So this is where the polarities are, right? So some want to go into the skies and some want to kind of, you know, really implant themselves on the earth. In the, in the book 50 years ago, 
down wing was not mentioned, but yet it seems as though that view, broadly speaking, concern, you know, uh, uh, concerns about uh, a, a scarcity, about limits, uh, you know, going to space would be a waste of money. Uh, also looking at perhaps technological stagnation over the past half century. It seems like even though downwing was not mentioned, it seems like downwing has been winning and is the dominant has been the dominant ethos. I think there's a certain truth to that, right? And 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 this is where I think the uh, the Silicon Valley people are very attuned to this point, right? I mean, I, you know, because uh, so many of them. I mean, Peter Thiel, I suppose, would be the the main one who talks about the the great technological stagnation that's been taking place over the past fifty years. I think he's you know basically right, and probably for the kinds of reasons you've just cited that there has been this kind of latent downwinger tendency. Uh, but I think, in a way, it has. Um, it has converged in very interesting ways with other kinds of movements in recent years to make it stronger um, so that it becomes a kind of social justice movement. Uh, and um, so, so it isn't no longer just purely about, you might say, you know, uh, ecologists, environmentalists in the narrow sense, but rather it, it has this kind of much broader sense because if one thinks about who would be more most vulnerable to any kind of climate catastrophe or something like that, then one starts to bring in the developing world, the poor, the people who are already kind of unprotected. And so this gets then rolled into a very large kind of social justice agenda, which then makes the the downwinger movement in a way much more uh, powerful, you might say, uh, than, than it did would have appeared, I'd say, 50 years ago. What sort of uh, led me to some of your writings was really the uh the 2016 election here in the United States when you had this weird phenomenon of people who who uh supported uh Bernie Sanders but yet uh when he did not win the democratic nomination said oh then we'll all, maybe we'll support Donald Trump and at first that looked that seems crazy but if you start to look at things at kind of an upwing versus downwing uh, perspective, it, it begins to make sense. Do you see this sort of this sort of merging of kind of the populace of the left and right co- coming together and making this scenario maybe actually happen? Yes, actually, I do, and 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 this is where. Um... I think people really, I mean, this is where I think uh, the Democratic Party is really in a very tight, difficult situation, to be perfectly honest, um, because I don't think, you know, if we're talking about the the establishment of the Democratic Party, I think, uh, you know, it, it, it's still very much on the sort of Hillary Clinton technocratic, you know, um, kind of broadly upwinger, you might say, kind of a way. And, and, and Bernie Sanders was just seen as a throwback to the past. Um, you know, so I would say, you know, that if you're, you know, Hillary Clinton, you're basically planning for all of that Rust Belt stuff, all of that kind of traditional working class thing to disappear over time. I think that's the scenario. But of course, the point about Bernie Sanders and and, and Donald Trump what is in a way to kind of keep the consciousness of the working class kind of alive. Right. Uh, and and um, and so, yeah, I do see that the the. And this sort of populism isn't going to go away. And, and, and to be honest with you, you know, nowadays there's a lot of inflammatory talk, especially in the United States, about fascism. Right. Um, but fascism, of course, fed on this kind of connection. Right. Uh, between the dis- you know, between the, you know, basically kind of working class disenfranchised people. Right. Um, you know, who in the past 
would have been voting, you know, on, on the left of the party, but then seeing the left somehow taking off into space, right, and not really addressing their, you know, bread and butter concerns. And so then, you know, some, you know, a leader that might be called fascist, right, then actually galvanizes and organizes this kind of group of people. Um, you know, it, it, it could happen. I mean, I mean, there are a lot of different kinds of ways in which the downwinger thing can play itself out, because I do think the environmental aspect of this is also there. But then environmentalism also has a kind of connection with fascism, too, in a certain way. I mean, uh, and um, so it's a very complicated story and it plays itself differently in different countries. And so, you know, if we're talking about the United States, it's a bit different than if we're, we're talking about Europe. There are these Bernie Sanders style populists on the left who are quite skeptical of corporate power. Now we have conservative populists on the right who also seem to be against big corporations these days. And both of them hate Silicon Valley. There's also a lot of overlap on housing density. Yet on cultural issues like abortion, for instance, these groups remain starkly divided. Is that how you see it? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I see, I see that a hundred percent. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what, what to do about it. It's a very strange situation, uh, but I do think it does point to the fact that, um, you know, the, the conventional political parties are going to end up realigning at some point. In, in other words, they're all, they're both going to kind of break apart. But not only in this country, but I, but you can see this certainly in Britain, the same sort of thing is happening as well. Um, and, and so there's an interesting thing about what does politics look like under these circumstances. Because I think one of the things that contributes to the destabilization of people's, you know, I, you know, p- finding a political home, as it were, right? Where, where is my political home, right? I, I think is the uh, is the fact that the state, which typically was the thing that uh, political parties were fighting over, control of the state and control over state power, right? The power that the state actually uh, wields nowadays is diminishing. Um, and and there's so many other players, as it were, that 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 in a way have have competing powers to the state and often can can kind of prevent the state from doing various things, that then when people start thinking about political identity, this is why young people, for example, don't vote, right? Because they don't see anything in it for them because they're not sure that getting one set of politicians or another set of politicians, you know, it, you know is going to actually mobilize enough power to actually get things done. And so I think that's also part of the background of this story, namely that there is this... Um, you know, the state isn't something worth fighting for or fighting about anymore in a certain way. It doesn't really anchor, as it were, the common political reality that people uh, understand. And this is also part of the world we live in, right, where we have so many different competing understandings of what's actually happening on the ground. And there is nothing terribly authoritative and establishment to sort of say, no, actually, this is happening. This is not happening. Um, so a lot of this kind of anchoring effect, this common ground stuff that used to make actually being in one party or another party important is disappearing as well. And so this is why it all seems very blurry and people are just kind of moving around from place to place. The sort of the typical median voter, and uh, if you want to characterize that as, as the typical uh, one in Great Britain or the United States, do you think they're fun- do you think they're fundamentally kind of an more of an upwing person or more of a downwing person? Oh, I think generally speaking, they're upwing actually. Um, upwing is very, I think they're upwing if you if you kind of ask them their, uh, their attitudes towards stuff. Uh, but the problem is putting it, when you put it all together as part of a political agenda, it often seems very threatening. Um, and I think that's kind of the public relations problem that upwingers have. 
um, because there are a lot of the actual things, you know, so like, do you want to be able to live longer, right? Do you want innovative medicines that would be able to cure diseases that in the past, let's say, killed your parents or something like this, right? Everybody's for this, right? Uh, and everybody's for, you know, is, is for all kinds of technological solutions to solve all sorts of problems. People are actually for all this stuff, right? Uh, the problem is that when you add it all together, right, and then you look in a sense, not to, not not simply the... Um, economic costs. I don't think the economic cost is really the big deal here. Um, but rather, you think about what the implications would be for the kind of world we would live in if all of this wonderful stuff came together. And you see, upwingers are very sensitive to the point we would be in a different world. This wouldn't be, as it were, a better version of the current world, but this would be a different kind of world. Okay. Um, and, and I think this is where uh, it starts to seem scary to a lot of people when it's actually presented as a political package. Okay. So for example, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, we could have all kinds, you know, telemedicine, there's this thing called telemedicine, right, which basically enables people, right, to, uh, you know, sort of uh, send in their symptoms to look up stuff, and then they can have access to this amazing biomedical information base that would then enable them to get customized medicine, right, in just the way they want, it would be a maximum use of the, of the internet for purposes, you know, of healthcare. But of course, this would involve an enormous amount, unprecedented level of surveillance and violation of privacy, right? Especially if we're monitoring the effects of people who voluntarily decide to take certain kinds of experimental drugs and stuff. Everything they do would have to be monitored and checked, okay? And, 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 and you know, so when you flesh out the picture of what the upwinger view involves, right, then people, you know, then you start to get, you know, in a way the opposition gets traction because they say, yeah, so you're gonna sell your privacy. Right. Is that what you're going to do? Right. And, and what are you selling it for? What, to take some experimental drugs that might not work and you might not even know what the side effects are. Right. And so it, it's quite easy once you flesh out and you present the Upwinger program as a program, not just as a set of isolated things you might want, but as an entire political program that, that it then becomes easy to, as it were, then enumerate the various implicit costs that this is going to have. And that's when you start to raise this, the fear factor right, in the electorate, you know, my privacy is going to be gone, this might be risky, blah, 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 right, and, and that's what, that, that's where we are, right, and so it's very hard to win elections when you're operating in that space. It's not, a, as you're suggesting, it's not an easy thing to, to, to poll, you know, with a public opinion survey, but I suppose if I was going to try to find a single question that might tell me where the public is, it might be nuclear energy, so if you're if you're for it, ah, yeah. you know, you, you're, you're probably inherently more upwing. If you're against it, probably more downwing. This is true. And this is uh, true. This is true. And, which means the public is pretty split. That's a good litmus test. Yes. It's the same thing in Europe, too. It's the same thing in Europe. I sense that in over the past year or two, and I think it's because of I think it's because of the uh, Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine and energy shortages. I think a growing realization that all these uh, climate goals are going to be very difficult to meet uh, without nuclear energy. That one, I think people are, one, specifically kind of rethinking nuclear. But then maybe people are going to start rethinking, why are we even in this situation? Why, why do we not already have abundant clean power? What is this bill of goods that the environmental movement has been selling us for 50 years that we're sitting here having to think about radically changing our lifestyles to meet some climate goal that we have energy shortages in Europe when it was all entirely avoidable. 
Well, I mean, this is where it gets kind of interesting because, of course, nuclear is not risk-free. Uh, and, and I think this has always been the problem, especially in Europe. I mean, because one thing you need to realize, especially if we're talking about the European Union, um, that the European Union actually has the precautionary principle baked in to a lot of its legislation, right? So in other words, this minimization of risk is one of the things that, for example, makes it very difficult uh, for biomedical innovations to actually, uh, you know, get on stream in Europe. Uh, I mean, and, you know, and environmental protection in Europe is incredibly high. So, for example, this enormous opposition to genetically modified organisms to put in the food system, right? All of this is very much to do with the precautionary principle being in there. And if the precautionary principle, right, which says basically, above all, do no harm, even it means you do less good, right, um, that's going to be a killer for nuclear, okay? Uh, and so the point is, yes, we could have had clean energy via nuclear, many decades ago, but it would have also been risky, right? Uh, it was probably a risk worth taking, I would think, uh, that, and I still think that now. Uh, but nevertheless, part of what's going on between the upwingers and the downwingers is basically the attitude toward risk, right? Because we can do a lot of amazing things right now if we're willing to absorb just a little bit more risk, Right. And the problem and, and, and this is a tough one for politicians, right, because politicians at the end of the day, you know, uh, you know, one way to think about what a politician is. Right. You know, in terms of serving their constituency is protecting them. Right. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, and, so, and so it's a, it's a you know, and so if you are in a, in a constituency, let's say, where you got a lot of eco activists, right, raising the alarm bells that if we put a nuclear reactor here, Right. Then all, you know, your water will be poisoned. You'll have, you know, you know, three legged cats, whatever. Right. Right. Uh, you know, what? How's a politician going to deal with that? Because there is a small chance that might happen. Right. Uh, and, and, and so it's a very tough tell. I, I think we could have actually we could have had a much cleaner world by now if we were able to if we were willing to take a little bit more risk. Uh, with regard to things like nuclear and more experimental kinds of technologies, even genetic modification, actually, in terms of our ability to adapt to climate change and stuff like that. Um, so I think that's so. And risk is one of the things that that often makes the difference in terms of political debate. Right. Uh, and ends up ending. It ends up, uh, as it were, defining the limits of plausibility for what you can put forward as a policy. You know, for some of the reasons uh, I, I, I mentioned earlier that. To me, the environmental movement has been a very downwing, limits-based movement. You sense that that's that's changing because of the reality of one, uh, the reality of, of of trying to to hit climate goals uh, without technology. Uh, the reality that if there's anything we've sort of learned during the pandemic and and maybe with some of these energy shortages in Europe, people do not like scarcity. They do not. They like abundance. They don't like shortages. And I'm wondering if that revelation is going to create a more upwing aspect of the environmental movement. Well, I mean, there there are, first of all, there are some upwing environmental movements. I and mean, one of them, I'm a fellow of the Breakthrough Institute in California. Uh, and those guys, of course, you know, they've been on this ticket for a long time. But 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 I think, you know, to be honest, their their, their, their degree of, of success in getting the message across has been limited. And this has been true of other such movements, you know, uh, eco-modernist, as they're called, movements right around the world. Um, and, and, and here, I think, you know, there is the issue of 
fear mongering. Okay, there's fear. There's the fear element that is very difficult to deal with in in political discourse. And so once it gets unleashed, right, it's very hard to combat it. Um, and I think in the case of nuclear and some of this, and this is true, I would say, of a lot of this more progressive technology, is that if you look at, uh, as it were, the agencies that would be promoting it, right, obviously we would be talking about state, corporate, we would be talking, you know, pretty heavy players that would enable this kind of new technology to go on stream in a big way, okay, um, and, and, uh, and to a large extent, some of this technology is already available, but it's been prevented from actually coming on stream. And you see the look of that to people who are already distrustful of all kinds of establishments and all kinds of authorities, right, is not good. It's not a good look, right? I mean, you know, if nuclear energy was something that could be promoted from a mom and pop store, it'd probably be much more palatable, right? Um, and, 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 and so this is a basic kind of problem, the kind of general distrust, because as you know, right, one of the things that has come about, you know, as a result of the pandemic right, is this, you know, efflorescence of conspiracy theories, right? Um, you know, and, and who's involved in the conspiracy theories? Well, big business, the state, right? All the kinds of big players who would in fact probably be among the supporters of nuclear among many other of these kind of innovative technologies, right? And so as it were, the look of the sponsors does not create an aura of trust, you know, in a populace that is increasingly distrustful of authority. I think that's a real basic kind of public relations problem that this whole issue has to overcome. I'm, I'm not sure how you do it, but I think that is even that that's that's a much more that's a much bigger issue than let's say you know uh, making people aware of what the benefits of nuclear energy are. Right during the pandemic, we've learned something about the issue of trust in society. What do you think we've learned about the issue of risk tolerance in society? More people that I would have guessed are very risk averse. Well, yes, I think that's exactly right. You know, it's an interesting picture. I think I think at some point, you know, once the you know once the air has cleared on this matter, uh, there needs to be a very a, a thorough kind of um, cross national comparison of the response to the pandemic. Because actually, nations of the world were all over the map on this in terms of the amount of social control they put put on their citizenry and so forth. And it's an interesting, in, in that respect, it was a very interesting living experiment, the pandemic, because of the ways in which the different political systems re responded to it, right? See, the state does have a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of power in, in certain kinds of arenas like health. And I think in a, in a sense, the state shot itself in the foot by, by making people too risk averse. We have been living in a world where we've been sort of promised you know, that the risks are going to go away, right? And that people are going to live longer, healthier lives forever. And we've been expecting this kind of, you know, uninterrupted upward trajectory, right? Certainly since the end of the Second World War, right? Um, that anything that might threaten that, right, then becomes a source of fear. And if we, in fact, lived in a world where, in fact, we realize it's going to be a kind of bumpy ride up, you know, death rates will vary. It's not that we're going to continue to minimize death rates, but that they will vary, but in a in, in the appropriate direction over time, then people would be more tolerant of situations like pandemics, where eventually people do die more than normally die. Because the pandemic was so publicized on a 24-7 basis, you could compare the death rates of all the countries of the world simultaneously as if you were as if this was some kind of sporting league. Right? right, where you, you say, hey, these guys are on the top of the league. They got the fewest per capita dying today. 
right. you know i mean i mean this is a not nonsense way of, of, of managing a pandemic but what it does is it does make it look like right if you avoid death if you avoid contamination then you're winning right right and and that then undermines the you know the kind of mindset that is required for any kind of technological progress which is much more risk seeking than that i will think that you know if we end up being able to cure or uh, significantly reduce the incidence of some big key diseases, that would send a powerful lesson to people. It would send a message to people that technology is good. It can we can radically change our our lives. And I wonder if something like that might really tip the scale. I think so, actually. The public relations side of all this should never be underestimated. I think you need a big win. Uh, and, and you know, so the polio vaccine, right? I mean, I mean, you know, you need something like that. Good point. Uh, you know, it's not just that it works well, but that the coverage of it, the relevance of it to the large numbers of people, right, uh, is immediate, right? It's obvious, right? People could see it. They don't need to know how the polio vaccine works. If they know someone with polio, they understand immediately. Right. Uh, and, and, and so this is the point. Right. You need something that has that kind of level of public salience. Um, and, and, you know, and people uh, and I think people who think about this think that's, ex- in fact, what's got to happen. Right. It, now, how it's going to happen, where it's going to happen. Um, it, it, you know, it's not obvious. But clearly, from the public relations standpoint, if you want something that's going to make a, this kind of uh, gestalt switch, Right. So that people go from being risk averse to being risk seeking. You need a big a, a big win on on something that you, you you know, that 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 you know, a couple of years ago you you wouldn't think was possible. If over the next 25 years, you know, 50 years where you saw the precautionary principle replaced with a more risk taking principle, what does that world look like? I mean, I don't, you know, we could have a whole half hour on this topic. Um, but one of the things I think would be necessary is that that people uh, would be allowed, at the very least, to be able to volunteer uh, for quite risky kinds of experiments, uh, you know, under, you know, uh, through kind of private contracts with scientists and, and others, right, where there is some mutual understanding that one understands the terms of agreement and, and so forth. And so there would probably have to be a kind of insurance agency around this for compensation when things go wrong. But what that would replace is the current kind of system, the kind of research ethics codes that apply kind of universally and in a blanket fashion across research establishments, especially in academia, which ends up preventing effectively a priori any kind of res- uh, risky research uh, from happening because of the of the possibility of harm to the subjects, even if the subject would voluntarily enter into the research, right? And so that, I think, is a minimum requirement that you would have to change the legal structure that at the moment prevents the risky stuff from being done. Because the problem is the risky stuff does get done anyway. It gets done in China, these ethics-free zones, right? It gets done underground, right? You know, black market, you know, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff I'm sure is going on around the world at the moment. And, and, and we might even be able to learn from it. But as long as there, there is this kind of very prohibitionist mentality, right, uh, in, in the legal system, right, it is, it is the great inhibitor, I, I would say. Uh, I mean, we really need to turn this into much more a contract system not a kind of blanket ban on certain kinds of research. That would be the first step. How should upwingers think about Elon Musk? Well, I mean, 
See, here's the thing. If you're an upwinger, you know, and and you're um and you're someone who uh in a way is all about, you know, taking risks and encouraging others to take take risks, um what better person to take a risk than a billionaire? Um, you know, so so in a sense, he's an appropriate he's a very appropriate person to be an upwinger in a sense. He can afford to lose. Right. I mean, and so, you know, in a way, he's doing a lot of stuff. Some of it, one, you know, people might regard as crazy. But nevertheless, if public agencies were doing it right, I mean, it would be a nightmare. But in some sense, a lot of the stuff that he's doing, you sort of believe someone ought to be doing it. Right. And it's his money, uh, you know, and, and I think, you know, when we talk about all these you know, rich people, what do they do with their money kind of thing? Right. I think the idea of risking the money or at least, you know, amounts of it, right, in these kinds of projects is not so bad, actually. I mean, there are a lot of worse things Elon Musk could be doing. I mean, you think about it. This man could be causing enormous amount of damage in the world. He might not be saving the world's poor. He might not be vaccinating them to death, right? But but what he's doing is actually quite, um, you know, very, he's trying various kind of experimental, innovative things that would be beyond the, uh, you know, the, 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 the financial range of, of, of most states, you know, and individuals around the world. So I'm willing to tolerate him. This is the kind of guy who is in a position to really take risks. That's what I see him doing. It's not like he's, is it guaranteed he's going to succeed in any of this stuff? Most of his income comes from PayPal still. And he's using that to bankroll all the other stuff. Steve, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks. 